Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for the clear proclamation of the nature and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, King of kings and Lord of lords, our master, our commander, our savior. Lord, I pray that you would work through me, speak through me, that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth and impact your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. In 1950, a new English translation of the New Testament was published. And uh, this translation of the New Testament was uh, completed by a translation committee of four men who would subsequently translate the Old Testament into English and completing the whole Bible in 1961. And in commenting on their translation philosophy, they wrote in the foreword of their new translation, We offer no paraphrase of the scriptures. Our endeavor all through has been to give as literal a translation as possible where the modern English idiom allows and where a literal rendition does not For any clumsiness, hide the thought. That sounds good. Sounds really good. Except for the fact that out of the four men, only one of them had enough knowledge of their original languages to even attempt a translation. And he had only studied Greek for two years at a secular university and was self-taught in Hebrew. One writer commenting on this translation said, The fact is, none of the members of the committee were really qualified to make a scholarly translation from the original language. No one on the committee had more than a rudimentary familiarity with Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. This lack of expertise is clearly revealed in the poor, biased quality of the renderings of many key biblical passages. Now, typically, a Bible translation committee consists not only of scholars who have studied their original languages for several years, but scholars who have taught them at the graduate and postgraduate levels for many years. And more often than not, um, scholars who have taught biblical languages for decades. Um, And these scholars are usually joined with experts in linguistics and theology. Um, That's typically what a translation committee is composed of. So... Why did these four men embark on such a long and arduous project which they were ill-equipped to successfully complete? And the answer is this. Because they wanted a translation of the Bible which wouldn't contradict their errant theology and would help to support their heretical views of God, mankind, and reality. These four members of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society didn't care what the scriptures really taught, 
because they had no intention of submitting to it. And so passages like this one in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, they would translate or rather mistranslate to say, because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things. And by means of him, all other things were made to exist. That's rank heresy. And there were many other passages. These men who, as many of you probably guessed it, belong to the cult also known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, have mistranslated in their attempt to cover up what the Bible teaches concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. However, even though they tried to erase the deity of Jesus Christ and his true nature throughout their Bible, there's so many passages which exalt Jesus as God that they miss some. And you can still use their own corrupted Bible against them if you know where to go, which I have done a few times. And what's interesting, though, is that they, have, they even have a note on their website, jw.org, concerning this passage in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, which reads this, commenting on the phrase, all other things. They say this, a literal rendering of the Greek text would be all things. However, such a rendering could give the impression that Jesus was not created, but was the creator himself. You think? <laughs> That's the whole point of the passage. And that's the part of the argument which the Apostle Paul is making here. That Jesus Christ is God. That's why he wrote what he did right here with the precise language that he used right here, elaborating on all the dimensions of creation. Because Jesus Christ is the creator. That's the whole point of this whole passage and this section in the letter to the Colossians, this is Paul's argument. This is his argument for the preeminence of Christ. This is his argument against the Colossian heresy against Christ, that they would say he's a created being. And it's not just this scripture that attests to the deity of Christ, but many throughout the whole New Testament and even throughout the Old Testament. And... Here, in expanding upon his argument that Jesus Christ is God, the Apostle Paul asserts that he is not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but by doing so, implicates Jesus to have all of the other attributes of deity. And this passage, as I said, it just has one main point. There's one main point to this whole passage. The, these two verses. That Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that term all things means all things. The whole universe. Everything that is or could be all things. He has created it. He sustains it. And then there are several implications concerning this one main point. Or rather, several substantiating pieces of evidence which support this main point. But before we look at all of those implications, there are two points which must be made. First and foremost, if all things were created by, through, and for Jesus, 
just as this verse says and many other verses throughout the New Testament say, then that logically cannot include Jesus himself. And therefore, he cannot be a creation, and therefore, he must be God. Second, all things include his own earthly body. And this is something that even our own human minds can sometimes grasp or fail to grasp and understand fully. Jesus created his own body to enter into and manifest himself to his own creation. And this is what many of the cultists, many heretics, many of those um, false um, streams uh, that would call themselves Christians, some sort of Christian denomination like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, all, all those who deny Christ's deity, Islam. This is something that confounds them. But just because Jesus took on human flesh so that he could enter into his creation does not make him a creation. This is the, the flawed logic of Islam, that the creator cannot become a man. And, and if you think about it, if, if you were, some of you may be artists, but if you painted an intricate and beautiful painting that was so detailed, it was nearly lifelike, and then painted yourself into the painting, would you be a painted character? No, you would not. Or what about a computer animation? And, and I understand it's not a perfect illustration. No illustrations are perfect, but it kind of helps you to see that the creator can create uh, his own body to enter into, to manifest himself to his own creation because he is the creator, and yet he is not created. And so the first implication concerning Jesus as the creator and sustainer of all things is that Jesus is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. For by him all things were created. And, and if he created everything, then he is all-powerful because he is above all, everything. And so he must have all power in order to create everything. And then he sustains it. And so in order to create everything and to sustain everything, then he must have all power and only God has all power. Only God is omnipotent. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. As John says in his gospel, um, in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. One of the key passages to refute this error of um, the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anybody else that would deny the deity of Jesus Christ, John 1, Hebrews 1, 1 John 1, Colossians 1, go to the ones because Jesus is one as the Father is one. He is God. And as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That not to mean that he is somehow a creation, as they might twist that to say, but he is of the same essence, the same substance. He is equal with God because he is God. He is one with God because he is God. He is God in the flesh. 
That's what it means by the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is all powerful because he created all powers. As verse 16 would go on to say in Colossians 1, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all powers were created by him, sustained by him, governed by him. So if Jesus created all things, then he has power over all things and is therefore omnipotent as only God can be. Second, if Jesus created all things, then Jesus must also know all things as well since he created them. If you create something, you design it beforehand. Whether you um, draft a design, a detailed design, or that design is in your head, when you create something, you know it. You know it perfectly because you're the creator. You created it. He knows every aspect of his creation. He knows all things. And Paul would go on to elaborate on this by saying, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These these statements are are contrasting dimensions to to encompass the whole, to elaborate the highest or the lowest, heaven or earth, visible and invisible, whether seen or unseen, um, those thoughts, information, concepts, um, spiritual beings is what it mainly means, but anything invisible, anything tangible or intangible, Jesus Christ created it. As Psalm 139 says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether, O Lord. You, you, you know all things. Nothing escapes your sight or your notice or your eyes. He's omniscient because he created all things. He's omniscient because he decrees all things. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. As it says in Ephesians 1, that, that is the entire Godhead and Jesus Christ is included in that, that he decrees all things. So Jesus is omniscient because, first, because he created all things. Second, because he decrees all things. Third, because he will judge all things. And so as the righteous and holy judge of the universe, he must have knowledge of everything, whether visible or invisible, whether thought, deed, or word, or action, or movement. He must know all things because he will judge all things. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, speaking of his apostleship, he says that he's not even able to judge himself. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Everything hidden will be disclosed. Everything that was spoken in the dark or whispered, hidden in secret, will 
be brought into light. Even the purposes of our heart. Not, not, not even the, the words, further than the words or the concepts, but all the way down to the motivations, the desires, the purposes of each person's heart will be disclosed. If there is a piece of information within the whole universe concerning molecules or subatomic particles or thoughts or designs, Jesus Christ knows it perfectly. And not only perfectly, but before the foundation of the world, he knew it. Nothing escapes his sight. He is omniscient. Mark, in his gospel, he says this concerning Jesus' omniscience and his deity. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, he said, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When the, the people brought in the paralytic um, into the house, and there were so, so many crowds and so many people that they tore open the roof, and they brought him down, they lowered him down so that he could be healed. Jesus initially just said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then Mark goes on to write, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They didn't even verbalize this. And they were thinking, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? And this, this passage is, this is like a double whammy for Jesus' deity. Because not only does he show his omniscience and his ability to heal, but that he forgives sins. And even the scribes said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus proves that he is God by his omniscience, by his pardon of sins, which only, only the righteous judge of the universe can do. Only the, the creator has the authority to pardon the sins of mankind. John's gospel, in John chapter 2, he says um, concerning the, the, the Passover feast when, when Jesus went and he, he writes in this narrative, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He, he even knows the, uh, the double-mindedness or the false motivations of mankind, that these people were, were believing in his name. But he knew who was truly believing in him as God and who was just paying lip service. He knew exactly what was in their hearts. And it's interesting because it says right here, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. He didn't believe in their belief because he knew the nature of their belief. And as one preacher recently said, um, Jesus does not trust us, but we are to trust Jesus. 
In fact, he knows the fickleness of our hearts and our minds and our motivations. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is omniscient. Third, Jesus is omnipresent. If he created all things and, and, and before creation, there, there wasn't anything physical. God is spirit. And though Jesus has a body now, he is everywhere. Jesus is here because he is one with God. He's here with us now. As he even told his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, when he, he's describing to them um, what they are to do to maintain the holiness of the church and explaining to them the process of, of discipline and, and judgment, he goes back to principles found within the Levitical law concerning judgment. And, and though this scripture has been misapplied, it's still true. In Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That doesn't mean, as many have thought in our church culture, that we must have two or three in order to have Jesus gathered amongst us. That, okay, well, there's two or three of us, so Jesus is here. No, it's, it's speaking of judgment, going back to the Levitical law, that if two or three of his disciples or leaders of the church agree on a judgment, then Jesus also agrees on that judgment. He is with them based on um, the principle that every um, act will be established on the foundation or the testimony of two or three witnesses. And he is with them in that process, because he is judged not over, only over all creation, but over his church and over his people. And he is with us in judgment. He is with us in worship. He is with us wherever we go. He is always with his people, because he is omnipresent. As he says in the Great Commission, Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And here is the comfort that we can go do this, the, the foundation of our, our, our ability to do this, the faith that it will be done. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is always with his people. He is always everywhere. He is always with his people in judgment, in ministry, in fellowship. He is here. He is present. There's no place that he cannot go because he has created all things in all places and he commands them. So Jesus is first and foremost omnipotent. He is omniscient. Third, he is omnipresent. And because he is these things, he is also, fourthly, eternal. Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning and he had no end. He is the alpha and the omega, not saying that he had a beginning and he had an end, but he encompasses all of time. He is beyond time. He is outside of time. He created time itself. 
which is another concept that in our human minds is hard to fully grasp. That Jesus Christ is outside of time looking down upon time and He even enters into time. Because He created it. He owns it. Jesus is eternal. And even the Jews understood this. They understood what Paul was saying when he wrote, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. They didn't believe it. But they understood because in John chapter 8, At the end of the chapter, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to stone him because he, in their eyes, was blaspheming. Because he invoked the Tetragrammaton, the great name of God, which he told to Moses, that said to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. Because I am who I am. And the beauty of this, in God condescending and helping us understand who He is, is that He simply just says, I am. And we would want more, and He does give us more about who He is, but He simply just says, I am. He just is. There is no grasping him or putting him in a box or a corner. He does define himself, but he is he is beyond all human comprehension or time or parameters or space. He just is. God is. As some writers have written, God is here and He is not silent. He is not silent. And He speaks to us. Puritan Stephen Charnock in in his book, The Attributes of God, writes this. He says, If God be of an eternal duration, then Christ is God. Eternity is the property of God, but it is ascribed to Christ. He is before all things, Colossians 1.17 i.e. all created things. He is therefore no creature, and if no creature, eternal. All things were created by him, both in heaven and in earth, angels, as well as men, whether they be thrones or dominions. If all things were his creatures, then he is no creature. If he were, all things were not created by him, or he must create himself. He hath no difference of time, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same with the name of God, I am, which signifies his eternity. He is no more today than he was yesterday, nor will he be any other tomorrow than he is today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is not only eternal, but he does not grow. He does not learn new things. He did, in a sense, in his humanity, grow in stature and favor and wisdom amongst men. So that, that, that is another concept that is hard for us to grasp. But in his humanity, for a time, he laid aside some of his divine prerogatives, though still retaining his complete and full deity and divinity. He is eternal. He is the same. He is self-sufficient. And what can often get us as believers 
is that Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, any of us. He calls us, he commands us, he loves us, he died for us, but he doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal. He is God. And if Jesus Christ is eternal and he is the same, then he is also immutable. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is eternal. And he is immutable. Hebrews 1, verse 10 to 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here's another, another passage to refute the, the heresy of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That You can easily go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 to 12 and read this. And, and they would agree that this is speaking about Jesus Christ, as the context shows. And, and then you show them the quote, and you go to the quote where it's quoted from the Old Testament, Psalm 102. And then you ask them, okay, it says this in Psalm 102. What, what is this? Who is this psalm speaking about? Oh, yeah, that's speaking about God. Because Jesus Christ is God. He is immutable, unchanging. He is consistent. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. And that is why he is called our rock. Immovable. Our strong tower. Our foundation. The one that we can rest in. That we can be sure of. That we can hope in. He, he is, because he's eternal, he is our eternal hope. He is our unchanging hope. And if all this is true about Jesus... If he is omnipotent, if he is omniscient and omnipresent, if he is eternal and immutable, then Jesus is also perfect. Because only God could be perfect. He is is perfect in all his attributes. And, And as some theologians would say, they would use a different term for the attributes of God. They would call it the perfections of God. That every single one of his attributes isn't just a character quality, but it's a perfection. He is perfect in his love and his mercy and his grace and his holiness and his power and his justice and his wrath. Every single aspect about him is perfect, and yet he is not, he he cannot be divided into parts because all of them are perfect. And they do not contradict one another. His wrath does not contradict his love or his mercy. He is loving because he is wrathful. Because he hates sin. And he punishes all sin. And only a a person, a being uh, full of love would punish evil perfectly. He does that. Jesus is perfect in every single regard, in his ability, in his knowledge, in his wisdom, in his power. He's perfect in time, in creating time, and entering, entering into time. 
He came in the fullness of time at the exact moment. And I wonder, most of you should have these experiences in your life and they're unforgettable experiences. But those times and those experiences of providence, when you look back on your life and you say, if I had not been there that minute or that second, this would not have happened, whether good or bad. If I delayed 30 seconds, then I would not have been hit by a car. I would not have interacted with that person. I would not have received this gift that changed the course of my life. And the same is true about Jesus. He is perfect in his timing, in space, in his use of space, and in his character. Jesus is perfect as his Father is perfect because they are equal and one. As Jesus even said in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's, he's telling the disciples and his hearers about the righteous and holy standard of God, that that standard is perfection and they must meet that standard in order to be with the Heavenly Father, in order to enter into heaven, in order to, order to, to be forgiven, to be in the kingdom. But he's also implying something else, that he himself is perfect. As Peter writes in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19, to You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Meaning perfect. The perfect sacrifice. So if Jesus is perfect, then Jesus is also the standard. He is the standard. He is perfect, and He is the standard. He is the standard for all morals and ethics. He is the standard for all behavior. He is the standard for all believers as He is our example. We are to be um, Christ-like. We are to follow Him. We are to walk in His steps. We are to be like Him, and we will be like Him. We will be conformed into His image because He has created us for that, perfect, that, that, that purpose and redeemed us for that purpose that we would all be made like Him and that we would glorify Him. He is the standard. He is the standard for us. He is the standard for all mankind. He is the standard for all morality, all righteousness, all ethics because He is the Creator. He created all things and therefore... All things um, find their purpose, their being in Him. All things are measured against Him, according to Him. He is the standard. He is the standard for all behaviors, for man, for women, because He knows all things, because He is God. Jesus is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is eternal. Jesus is mutable. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the standard. And Jesus is truth. 
He's truth. Because He's created all things, therefore, all things are according to His designs. So He defines reality as it is. He determines what is true and what is not. He is the way, the truth, and the life, as he attested to. John's gospel, in the beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, verses 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. Grace to mankind in being the redeemer for us and paying the penalty for our sins and in expressing the perfect grace of God toward us as sinners. But truth in showing the truth of God. The truth of who God is in all His perfections. The truth of of man, of who mankind is uh, uh, as sinners in need of a Savior. The, the, the truth of reality in this fallen, sin-cursed world that needs a Savior, that needs reconciliation. He, he displayed all this truth in His person, in His words, in His actions. Because He is truth. As John would go on later to write, for the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All that truth about who God is in His completion, in His perfections, in His holiness. Jesus revealed God to us. He came and took on human flesh, the human flesh that He created so that God Himself could manifest Himself to us, His creation. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in chapter 4 of the book to the Ephesians, he writes this. He's he's teaching them how to live and how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, um, explaining this principle of sanctification called the put-off, put-on principle. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, he he says... um, In contrast to the unbelievers and the Gentiles, he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth concerning what the church is to be, what they are to be, the behaviors of believers, the the truth about reality, about sin, about holiness, all that is encompassed in the word truth is in Jesus because Jesus is truth because he's the creator because he created all things he is true and because he's true because he's perfect because he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent because he has all these perfections and attributes of deity Jesus also has authority over all things. Letter I in your outline. Jesus has authority over all things because he created all things. So all things are his. Paul 
explains this. Verse 16 of Colossians 1, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's he's explaining every every possible uh, position of authority was created by Jesus, and he has authority over it. Now, uh, Paul is alluding to the um, angelic host and, and demons, um, but it encompasses all authority, whether in heaven or on earth, whether, those, the, whether that's the hierarchy of angels and demons, um, most of which we have no clue about, but yet Paul says he reigns over it. He created all of it. Those, those leaders of the nations and empires, he created them. He raises up kingdoms and he brings them down. He places kings on their throne and he brings them down. He exalts and he humbles. All things are his. He created all of them. He owns all of them. They're all in the palm of his hand. As uh, says in the Proverbs, uh, the heart of the king is like streams of water in his hand. He, he can dump it or guide it wherever he wills. He, he raises up empires and he lowers them. He, he, he allows mergers of, of corporations and empires and kingdoms and churches. And he dissolves them. He raises up and he lowers in all authorities, even within the family, even amongst siblings. However little, however small, however great, however large, all of it. He has authority over all of it. And he will reign over every single one of them. Because he does reign over them, but there is a coming a day when externally and explicitly we will see his reign over every single authority. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 9 the writer of the, to the Hebrew says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but everything will be in subjection to him. And the author to the, the Hebrews, he, he's quoting from Psalm 8, which testifies of the, <clears throat> the pinnacle of God's creation being mankind. That God created man as vice-regent in his express image to um, be... Um, to testify of his glory on earth, to subdue the earth and to have a dominion over it and all the beasts upon earth. And and he's quoting this psalm in relation to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the perfect man, the preeminent one, that he is king, he is ruler over all things, and that he is the most high and exalted man, but he is not a creation. He is the God-man, 
and he will rule and reign over all things. He will, he will break them with a rod of iron, as Psalm 2 speaks of the nations. Jesus reigns. He has authority over all things. Because he's God. And because he has authority over all things, because he's the creator of all things, that also means that Jesus owns all things. Jesus owns everything. And oftentimes, yes, we've been given many great things within this world, in our lives. And we're called to work and to earn a living and, and through our work and through our labors, um, we can purchase things and, and we do own things. And there is a principle of, of, um, of personal property throughout the Bible and, and, and owning land. And that is good and right and true. But ultimately, it's God. It's Jesus Christ who owns everything. Because e- e- even if we build something, even if we manufacture something, even if we create something, it's Jesus Christ who created those atoms and molecules and stuff that that thing is created out of that we have rearranged into our own likeness or, or, or what we like to, to serve our purposes. He owns all things. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's all his. All peoples are his. All nations are his. All rulers and authorities are his. All churches are his. He will open them and he will shut them. He will raise them up and he will tear them down. He will do with them as he pleases because they're his. And this has serious implications and applications for our lives because our time is not ours. It's His. He created it. He owns it. Our abilities, they're His because He gave them to us. Our our spiritual giftings, they're His to be used for His glory in His church. He owns them. Our, Our money... That's not ours either. That's His. We use it for His glory. Even when He taught us to pray, when His disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, He said, pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And then He says, uh, give us this day, our daily bread. And so we, we ask Him for daily sustenance and he gladly gives us gives it to us but why so that we can serve him so that we can live for his glory for his purposes because he owns us because he owns all things and and there are several points in our um, Christian lives and and even if we're not a Christian um, even if um, those who are hostile against Christ, there are times when we're brought to the end of ourselves and realize that, you know, it's, it's not all ours. And, and we have to plead with God because we're needy. We're, we're desperate. 
We, we can't create something out of nothing. We, we need sustenance. We need bread. We need money. We need ability. We need health. We're creatures. And, and, and the, the most, um, probably the greatest characteristic of a creature is need. We need. And we need from our creator. And everything that we have is from our creator, who, as Colossians 1.16 says, is Jesus. Jesus owns all things. And not only does he own all things, he sustains all things. As Paul writes in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There, there is many, um, I've heard this several times, that, that many um, nuclear physicists and scientists are, are confounded by how um, atoms and, and electrons and protons and subatomic particles hold together, how, how they don't just spin off, how, how the universe itself um, works at the smallest level, and, and this verse explains it, Jesus. Jesus owns all things. And I've said this before, and it's kind of funny. It may, it may be true. It may not be true. But I would assume that if you get down to the smallest particle, wherever we get to is somewhere, you probably see a tag that says property of Jesus. <laughs> because he owns it all. He created it all. And... It's all his. We're just stewards. We're just benefactors. In him, all things hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1.3 says. That just by a word. He, he spoke creation into existence by a word. And, and at the end, he'll, he'll defeat all his enemies by a word. He upholds everything by the word of his power. In his commentary on this um, passage, Curtis Vaughn writes this. He says, all things used twice in the verse translates an expression that was sometimes used in the sense of our word universe. It denoted the totality of things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that all things hold together. And Christ means that he is both the unifying principle and, pers and the personal sustainer of all creation. It springs from him and finds in him its common bond and center. He is, to use the words of Lightfoot, the principle of cohesion, who makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. That there is, it, and sometimes you, you can use this as an argument for creation itself, that there's an order inherent. In creation. That Jesus not only sustains it and upholds it. He orders it. He has designed it. It functions. There's, there's an inherent form and function in the universe. The universe is intelligible. It can be known. It, there, there's an inherent accuracy and consistency in the universe. You, you think about it. Why why? Oftentimes, you know, 
people like to say that science and religion are at odds with one another, but the scientific method cannot even function apart from intelligent design. That it presupposes uh, accuracy and form and function and consistency and intelligibility that this universe was designed and upheld and held together because Jesus did it. And, And not only does he sustain it because he owns it, because he has authority over it, because he's the creator. But finally, Jesus will reconcile all things. He will bring all things together in the end. And and this is not plan B. This was part of his plan from the beginning to uh, glorify himself to his creatures to express his, his glory, and not that he needed us to do this, but it was an outpouring of his glory to show his wrath and his justice and his holiness and his, his wisdom and his creative design and his, his ordering of not only the universe, but history itself and all mankind, that he will reconcile all things. First and foremost, he reconciles his people, as as Paul writes later in in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He reconciles his people to himself. He came to bring us to God to reconcile us to the holy God of the universe through his blood, through the blood of his cross. But here's the thing. Because we get the reconciliation of his people. We we understand that. That we have been redeemed by his blood and through him, through his life, through his righteousness that's imputed to us, we are redeemed. But Paul writes that he will reconcile to himself all things. And what he means by this is that he will put all things in their proper place, in their proper function. That he is not only redeeming a people for himself, but he's going to reconcile the evil of this world and his enemies to their rightful place in his punishment under his wrath and torment forever in hell. And unless you repent and believe upon Him and come to Him for reconciliation, for redemption of your sins, you will spend an eternity in hell where you reconcile all your sins and your transgressions against Him as He pours out His wrath, His perfect wrath, to display His perfect justice in and through you. And you will be tormented in His sight as Revelation 14 says. He will reconcile all things. All things will be put into their rightful order and place within the universe. He will reconcile His creation. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this in verses 19 to 23. He says, 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, when Adam fell, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, that sin, in a sense, began within their hearts. As Satan tempted Eve and, and, and Eve gave to Adam. She looked upon the tree. She desired it. She saw that it was good for food. It was a, the, <clears throat> the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, as John writes. And, and when she transgressed against God, the fall started within her heart and within the heart of Adam. And because Adam, as the, the head, the federal head of all mankind, fell, all mankind fell with him because we were in his loins. And, and so the fall began from the heart outward. And corruption spread to the body that we would, as God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. That we die because of that. And then corruption f- spread even further to the rest of the creation. That thorns and thistles will grow up. It will not yield its fruit, as it said. And so all of creation, in a sense, is corrupted by sin. And then when Jesus Christ comes to redeem us, He redeems us in the same order that we fell beginning with our hearts. He takes out that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that can feel him, feel and see and know, and a mind that can understand his law, and the veil is taken off of our eyes, and we see the world and ourselves and everything as it really is, and we repent and we believe. But redemption doesn't stop there because he will fully redeem us when we are glorified and given new bodies. And so we will be fully redeemed, but even as we are fully redeemed, His redemption doesn't stop with us. Because He redeems not just us, but a people and a kingdom and a nation He will redeem. And not just a a people and a kingdom and a nation, but the whole world. He will redeem the whole world and all of creation will be reconciled in the new heavens and the new earth. Full redemption. He will reconcile all things to Himself. As at the end of the Bible, it says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8, And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, He said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He will reconcile all things. He will redeem a people. He will make all things new. And he will put sinners and transgressors and idolaters where they belong in the lake of fire. But what's interesting is this. That list that he says about the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. If we were honest, that was some of us. And here's the thing. Because before that, he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is come. All we have to do is seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. And, and, and he will give us that living water. And he will forgive us. And, and, and this list, because this list is interesting because it's, it's found somewhere else. It's the same list, almost identical to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is holy, because he is righteous, because he, he, he cannot look on sin. He cannot have any imperfections with him. But here's the beauty of it. Because Paul goes on and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And it's key that he says, such were some of you. Not such are, as some people in our age can say that um, there's gay Christians. That's like saying there's um, adulterer Christians or there's uh, thieving Christians or there's murdering Christians. We, we, we don't identify ourselves by our sin. We turn from our sin. And we turn to Christ. And if we have turned from any of these grievous sins and embraced Christ, there is redemption, there is healing, there is washing. Because He will reconcile all things to Himself. Whether that's through the blood of His cross or that's by His wrath in hell. You will be put in your proper place. Because he owns all things. So the main point is to come to him, to seek him, to know him, to trust him, to follow him, to give him glory with your life because that's why you were created. That's the whole meaning of your life. That's the whole purpose of your life. All things were created by him, 
for Him, through Him. For from Him, to Him, and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And at the end of the Bible, it says this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So that's a warning to anyone who does not want to submit to these holy scriptures, this holy, perfect word of God, and wants to twist them to fit their own suiting, their own false theology, their own um, opinions and, and outlooks on who Jesus is. That's a warning. That you need to repent and trust in this word and trust in Jesus that he is God and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that he gives us and we can hope in him because he is God, because he is Lord, because He is Master, because He is Creator, because He owns all things, because He has authority over all things, because He will reconcile all things to Himself, and therefore our hope is sure, our hope is eternal, our hope is everlasting. Lord, help us to completely hope in Him, to completely rest in Him, to glorify Him, with our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would forgive us for our wrong impressions of you, for dishonoring you with our walk or our thoughts or our attitudes or our words or our actions. Help us to glorify you with our lives this week. In your name we pray. Amen.